want to add my welcome to you this morning. And um, as we begin, this is a, a disconcerting thought. This comes from the description of Toby Sumter's book, Blood Bought World. The description on the back of the book says, if Jesus had been born in our day, the council that condemned him would have included a couple of well-known evangelical pastors, a few outspoken pro-life leaders, a conservative libertarian-leaning politician, and at least one Bible-thumping fundamentalist. Jesus was murdered by church people for churchy reasons. That's disconcerting and, and even a little offensive, I think. But I think Toby's right. There is a kind of false religion that's made up of almost Christians who are so close and yet so far away from God himself. They're nice, they're religious-looking, churchy people who, given the chance, would murder Jesus. And they would have very virtuous-sounding reasons for doing so. If, if you grew up in church, if you have a church background, one of the greatest dangers or threats to you is settling for this kind of false religion. Man-made, self-reliant effort to clean yourself up for God. And if you're on the fence about church or about organized religion, or if you have no church background at all, and words like moralistic and puritanical would be the last descriptors of your permissive life, one of the greatest dangers you face is rejecting Jesus, the living Jesus, for the wrong reasons. Namely, rejecting Jesus because you don't like what you see in religious hypocrites. Thankfully, for our sake, for our benefit, God has spoken to us in His Word, and He graciously, I just can't get over how, how much grace God gives through His Word. Every part of, of this book is just God communicating Himself and giving grace, and He graciously provides to us this morning the antidote to false religion, to legalism, to moralistic self-righteousness in order to keep you from becoming those kinds of churchy people who would kill Jesus for churchy reasons. So turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 30, read through verse 47. We're in the middle of Jesus addressing religious leaders, religious authorities in Jerusalem who wanted to kill him, we saw last week, because he healed a man on the Sabbath. So he is responding to that. And he says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you said these things so that people might be saved, so that the religious might be saved, so that those who are far from you might be saved and have life. And Jesus, as you yourself said, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and all who hear will live. Make souls live today, dead souls who cannot make themselves live by human effort. Make us live by your word. We receive it, we believe it, we trust it. We pray that you would speak to us for your namesake and for our joy. Amen. So the unsettling and offensive reality that this text confronts us with is this. You can be so close and yet so far away from God. False religion looks so close. Remember, Jesus is addressing a religious audience here, in particular religious authorities, people who were so outraged that he dared to heal a man on a Sabbath that they wanted to kill him. They began to plot his murder, according to John 5, 1 through 18. These are religious leaders, and they had an elaborate system of morality. John 5, 10, it's the Sabbath, they said to the man who was healed. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed and walk. And these are rigorous, rule-keeping people. Just to be safe, they had set up all of these man-made guardrails around God's commandments to make sure that no one got anywhere close to breaking God's actual commandments. Like Greg told us last week, God's commandment about the Sabbath was you shall not work. And so they came up with 39 categories of kinds of work you couldn't do on this day. And one of those was you may not carry anything from one place to another. 
just to clarify and to be safe. And who can blame them? I mean, Numbers 15, a man is killed, put to death at God's command. Sabbath breaking was a capital offense. And there was a guy who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And so, I mean, maybe we could cut them a little slack for taking this seriously and trying to be careful about these things. They had an elaborate system of morality and they were careful about trying to follow it. They had an apparent zeal for God. I mean, why were they seeking to kill Jesus? According to verse 18, because he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But before we jump to judgment about them, I mean, would, would you tolerate somebody who went around making himself equal to God? Wouldn't that kind of be front to you as a, a blasphemous thing? I mean, they are serious about defending God's honor. And they were diligent students of the Bible. Jesus himself acknowledges in verse 39 that they search the scriptures and they set their hope on Moses in verse 45. He uses a verb there that's referring to a technical term for Bible study, exegesis, scholarly work. I mean, they went through Awana, they memorized all the verses, they faithfully attend BSF, they know how to exegete any passage of scripture. They are diligent students of the word. And they're respectable, you know, above reproach kind of people. Jesus says about them in verse 44, you receive glory from one another. These are people who have carefully curated lives designed to get all the likes and follows and shares. They're very careful about what they project to others to come across in a respectable way. Here's the thing, from the outside... On the surface, false religion can look to the observer almost indistinguishable from true religion. I mean, you look at somebody reading their Bible with their journal open, is that false religion or true religion? There's not enough information. One of those questions on the test. Look at that man putting his check in the offering basket. Is it false religion or true there's not enough information there. The outward appearance isn't enough for us to know the heart. False religion looks so close, but it's so far from God. For all of their religious appearances, listen to Jesus stinging indictments against them. I count seven of them. You have never heard the Father's voice. Think about how offensive that would be to people who were careful students of Scripture. You have never heard God's voice. You have never seen the Father's form, verse 37. Verse 38, you do not have the Father's word abiding in you. Verse 39, yes, you search the Scriptures, but you miss the entire point. You don't understand anything that you're exegeting. Verse 46, you set your hope on Moses. Great, but you don't believe a single word he wrote because if you did, you would believe me. Verse 42, you don't love God. I don't know if we can rank these in order of offensiveness, but that cuts to the heart. You, you, just, you don't even love God. Verse 44, you care more about what people think about you than what God thinks of you. 
for all of the religious activity and all of the religious appearance, they remain spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually unfeeling, spiritually dead. That's their condition. Upon closer inspection, self-reliant false religion is just lipstick on the pig. It's just like Jesus said, whitewashed tombs, painted nice on the outside with rotting corpses on the inside. And Jesus sees right through all of their religious appearances. That elaborate system of morality, all of their man-made guardrails around God's commands, they're all blasphemous. It is blasphemous to assume that you can be holier than God. If God is the perfection of righteousness, the perfection of holiness, and you come along to improve him, what is that going to do? Toby Sumter says, to add anything to Jesus is always to dilute him. You can't add anything. To submit to man-made regulations at all is to submit to some authority, some king other than Jesus. And it's not just the religious who run into this problem of man-made righteousness. I think the world is full of human beings living this way. Even the irreligious have their own elaborate system of man-made structures, strict legalism, you know? Don't use plastic straws and don't use GMO products and drive low-carbon vehicles and you have to bake the cake for the same-sex wedding and you have to or else you are not righteous. It's an elaborate system. What about their zeal for God? It's ironic that in their haste, their rush to defend God, they began to plot the murder of God. That that should tell us something's wrong, something misplaced about their, their zeal. What about their rigorous study of Scripture? Jesus says in verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have Life. Kyle Strobel says, reading the word is often the easiest way to seem spiritual. It's the easiest way to look spiritual to others and yet be living entirely from the flesh. Reading the Bible can derive from a desire, I mean, this could be the driving motivating factor, can derive from a desire to sound spiritual or intelligent. Reading the Bible can be fueled by guilt and a desire to rid oneself of that guilt. It can furthermore be a fleshly attempt to earn God's favor. It's one of the easiest ways to try to look good to God and to others. And here's the life and death issue at stake for us. You can look good without loving God. You can look good without loving God. You can be so close and yet so far from God. Why? Because the deadly heart condition under this false religion is unbelief. And faith is the very thing that God calls for, that he requires. Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He has only ever called his people to trust him, and trust is the one thing that these religious authorities are lacking. Verse 38, 
You do not believe the one the Father sent. Verse 43, you do not receive me. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Verse 47, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Believe, believe, believe. That's what Jesus is calling for here. This is what Paul said in Romans 9, 31 through 32. Israel, Israel, God's chosen people, his covenant people, the people who had the prophets and the promises and the law and the sacrifices and the temple, all of that. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Pay close attention. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. That's the distinction between false religion and true religion. There is only one way to relate to God, and that is by faith. Abandoning all confidence or trust or reliance or dependence in yourself As if it's by works means as if God now owes me something. The the word Paul often uses throughout his letters is anything you do that you think you can boast about, brag about, take credit for before God. God's word has always called for faith from the garden till today. That is all God has ever asked his people to do. Trust me. And they took um, Daniel Fuller says it's like God's, God's word, his commands, his laws, like train tracks laid down. And, and the cart of your life is just meant to be carried along those tracks, pulled by the engine of faith, powered by God's grace. That's all God has ever meant. And what did Israel do? They took the train tracks and tried to stand them upright and turn them into a ladder to climb their own way to heaven by their own effort, their own willpower, their own exertion. Don't do that. You can't. You will die. You will end up falling in among the very people who would, given the chance, kill God. Religious unbelief is so dangerous. I I think it's so dangerous precisely because it looks so harmless, even virtuous. I mean, some sin, let's be honest, some sin, just you don't even have to be saved to know that it's messed up. You don't have to be a Christian. The flesh and blood knows that's, that's wrong, like really repulsive, makes my stomach sick, wrong. I just saw a headline last week about a couple in Illinois that was charged with the murder of their five-year-old son. And when I started to read through the article of what they did to him before they killed him, I just felt sick. And I thought, you don't have to be a Christian to know that's messed up. But the sins of false religion, they're so churchy, so dressed up and disguised as righteousness. It's not gossip and slander. It's just sharing prayer requests. It's not envy. Trust, I'm not envious. I just have concerns about his stewardship. I'm just passionate about justice. You know, I, I want to make sure everything's e- equal and fair for everybody. So I'm not envious. It's not arrogance and pride. It's you know, passion for theology and correct doctrine. It's not harmless. It's it's death. That's what Jesus says here. That's the implication of verses 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them. You don't. You think you do and you don't. 
you refuse to come to me that you may live. The implication is false religion is death and it's worse than that. Given the chance, given the chance, this is what's so shocking, hard to wrap your mind around, but the self-righteous murdered God. Again, it's those horrifying sins that everybody knows are bad. You know, there are things that are so shameful, the people who do them do them in secret because they know they're wrong and they don't want to get caught. And so, and they're shameful when they come out. You know, some well-respected guy gets busted for embezzling from his company or some teacher gets caught the camera in the locker room recording kids and has been doing it for years. And, you know, the, the shameful things, right? But the sins that escalated to the murder of the Son of God were the ones that self-righteous people did to make themselves look good. The kind of sins you do in public because you think they make you look good. That's crazy. Those are the ones you'd think like it'd be the, the people sinning in secret who would murder God. No, it's the people whose sins are out in public because they get all the praise and attention for it. So what are we to do? The, this text is full of grace, full of grace that we might live. And I would sum up the good news it offers like this. God himself draws near to those who are far from him. God himself draws near. God himself relentlessly pursues arrogant people, unfaithful people, hypocritical people, self-righteous people, falsely religious people. God himself comes to them. God draws near to those who remain so far away from him, people who have rejected him by trying to be good on their own without him. I mean, if the sin of false religion is rejecting God by relying on yourself, then the remedy to it can't be anything that you do in your own effort to get back to God. God has to reach you. God and God alone saves sinners. Jonah 2.9, salvation belongs to the Lord. God saves. He saves. And He does it in such a way that He gets the glory. The way He saves is by giving Himself. That is Jesus' central claim in this whole response to the religious leaders. The Father has sent me. The Father sent me. The Father gave me, put me forth for your sake. Verse 30, verse 36, verse 37, verse 38. It's the line he keeps repeating. The Father sent me to you. And what does that tell you about God and his willingness, his disposition to save, to be in relationship with the very people who reject him? Life is not found in you or anything you can do. It is found in relationship with God. Life is in God alone. And so for your soul to live, you have to be joined to Him. Verse 26, Jesus says, The Father has life in Himself. In Himself. And He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Life is in God alone. Just like a branch cut off from the, the trunk will die, the only way for your soul to live is to be united, grafted in, joined to Jesus in this life-giving union. You can't will yourself to live. You can't work yourself out of the grave when you're dead. 
Spiritual life is found only in union with God, not any of the efforts of the the flesh. So Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And, And the gracious assurance that this text gives us is that God wants this. God wants you in relationship with himself. It's his purpose to join you to himself. Jesus says in verse 34, I say these things so that you may be saved. He wants this. Verse 40, come to me that you may have life. All of Jesus' indictments against false religion are actually invitations into relationship with God. Jesus says in verse 45, don't think that I will accuse you before the Father. Don't think that I will accuse you. Jesus, yes, he is going to judge the world, but he is not going to accuse the world. John 3, 17 says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says, look, there is plenty of evidence against you to condemn you just by the standard you're trying to live up to. Moses will accuse you. Your self-righteous standard Just measure yourself by the standard that you use to judge others. How would you do? That's a a scary thought. I mean, so so there's God's holy, perfect standard. You could be sent to hell just by your own lesser standard that you, everything you use to judge others, have you perfectly kept that? No. Jesus says, "I, I don't, I didn't come to accuse you. He will judge the world, but he came to save the world. God wants you to know him. That's why God gives his son and then bears witness that this man, this man, Jesus from Nazareth, is the eternal son of God, so that you will believe him. The father takes away every excuse anyone could have. I mean, Jesus does make some crazy claims here. Claims to be equal to God to be one with the Father, that whatever the Father does, He does. Whatever the Father says, He says. And so He corroborates that claim. He offers evidence. That's what He does in this text, so that they will believe. I mean, His heart for these religious people is incredible to me. They have no excuse. He he points them to John the Baptist. You sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. I mean, between human testimony and divine testimony, it should be clear which one's weightier, but Jesus points to John and says, look... Human authority is not very compelling to me, but I'm pointing you to John so that you may believe. There's evidence that I'm not making this up. John is an eyewitness. He saw the Spirit of God descend on me at my baptism. Ask him. You checked with him. He corroborated my claims. Jesus points to his works, and he says in verse 36, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, they bear witness. They testify. They give incontrovertible evidence about me that the Father has sent me. Nobody can do those kinds of things unless the Father is with him. If Jesus does what only God can do, then he must be in the Father, and the Father must be in him. That's his claim. He says in verse 37, the Father himself is a witness corroborating my claims. Jesus doesn't tell us here if he has a specific occasion or event in mind. We know that at his baptism, a voice thundered from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, And at the mountain, when he was transfigured, listen to him. The Father himself bears witness. 
And then Jesus says, and then you have those scriptures. Remember those scriptures you study so carefully? All of it, all of it, the sacrifices, the temple, all the line of failed kings, it's all pointing to me. And can we just acknowledge how arrogant that would be to claim if it's not true? (laughs) Your whole religious text, it's about me. That would be the most egocentric thing somebody could claim if it wasn't true. But if it's true, it's not arrogant, it's just true. All of God's revelation and communication points to His Son, Jesus. Here's the conclusion from this. In the person of Jesus, God has drawn near to those who are far from Him, those who could never work their way back to Him. God himself has come near in order to bring us into relationship with himself, something man-made religion can't do. Jesus does what false religion can't do. False religion can't save you from the just judgment of God. Jesus can and Jesus does. He warns in verse 29, there is a coming judgment He claims in verse 27, he is the one with authority to execute that judgment. But, verse 34, I'm saying these things so that you may be saved. He saves. False religion can't hear God's voice. All those who hear Jesus do. That's what he claims. All those who hear the voice of the Son of God live. False religion has never seen, can never see the glory of God, the form of God. All those who rely on Jesus, behold God. Jesus is the one, the eternal word at the Father's side who has made God known to us. False religion can't love God, but those who rely on Jesus do love God. First and greatest commandment, you shall love God with all your being. And these religious authorities failed to love God. Jesus says you have no love for God in you at all. For those who are in Jesus, that's not just a commandment, it's a promise. You shall love God. You will love God. You do love God because through me, I join you into the very life of Father and Son and Spirit and my Spirit in you fills you with the very affection for me that the Father feels for me and you're caught up into this eternal relationship of love and delight in the glory of God. False religion can't give your heart affection for God. It can give your mind lots of speculative knowledge about God, but it can't give you affection for God. Those who try to clean themselves up through false religion can't please God, but those who rely on Jesus do. They are pleasing to God because Jesus is pleasing to God. Those who come to God through Jesus are seeking not their own glory, but the glory that comes from God. So what should we do in response to this text? I've said it already. Jesus just calls for one thing. Believe. Believe. That that is what he calls the religious, falsely religious, to. And the irreligious who have rejected all forms of morality. However you reject God, Jesus calls all people to believe, to receive him, to trust him, to cling to him, to to rely on him. And, And turning to Jesus in faith is the very opposite of relying on yourself. 
It's the very opposite of relying on yourself. Jesus asks two questions in this text that I think expose the root of unbelief. It's not lack of evidence. A lot of people say that they don't believe because they're waiting for more evidence. Scripture says everybody knows God exists. Romans 1 is clear. Everyone knows already, but we suppress the truth of God. We ignore it. We deny it. But when you stand before God in judgment, you will have no excuse. You won't be able to say you didn't give enough evidence. The, the root is not lack of evidence. It's, it's pride and self-reliance. Look at the question he asks in verse 44. How can you believe? How can you? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Why is the world full of unbelieving people? Because as long as you crave the approval, the praise, the attention of man, you can't see the glory of God. So blinded by your own pseudo-glory. As long as you care about looking cool and appearing smart and being relevant, and you, you can't see Jesus. It, it's, it's a a willful moral inability. So repent. Give that up. The, the desire to look good. Just, just be, be aware of the warning of this text. That desire to look good to others is death. And it's that trajectory of sin that leads to ultimately murdering God himself. That's how dangerous that craving is in you. So turn and seek the glory that comes from God alone. Pray to him, cry out to him and say, God, I just want, I want to love what you love, value what you value. I want what you desire. I want you and the glory that comes from you. Second question Jesus asks is, if you don't believe Moses' writings, how will you believe my words? You can turn to scripture without turning to Jesus. So beware. You can turn to Scripture without ever turning to or recognizing the person, Jesus. But, don't misunderstand, you cannot turn to Jesus without turning to Scripture. He is revealed in the words of Scripture. And it's cool today to pursue some version of Christ outside of the Bible, un untethered to this ancient restrictive book. You know, the, the universal Christ, the, the, the Christ in all of us kind of thing. You can't know Jesus without his word. Here's the, the, the warning I take from this. Both the religious and the irreligious can't believe in Jesus because, according to verse 47, they misread the Bible. Misread the Bible. The, the religious come to the Bible thinking the more they read it, the more points they earn with God, the more approval from God they have, and so they miss Jesus because it's all pointing to Him. They don't read the Bible to know Jesus. But the irreligious come to the Bible and they misread the laws of Moses. They sit in judgment over it thinking, my sense of morality and ethics is so much higher than this antiquated book. And they sit in judgment over it and they can't see Jesus. And then they reject the person Jesus 
because they don't like what the Bible says maybe about sexual ethics or something. Tim Keller says, if you're going to reject the, the Bible, deal with the ultimate claim it makes first. Get the order right. Don't come to it and decide you do like or don't like this or that teaching on dietary laws or ethics or dress or whatever. Come to this and deal with its central claim that the man Jesus is the Son of God the Christ, God incarnate, that he lived and died and rose from the dead for your sin, deal with that claim. If that's true, the other stuff is going to sort itself out. That's the central claim. And that's the offer we hold out to the world. If you want life, if you want eternal life, you must humbly submit to God's word. Come to it, not coming to the Bible to master it, but to be mastered by it. Not coming to sit in judgment over it, but to sit under it and let God's word lay claims on your life. So, so don't, don't read the Bible to check it off your, your list of good religious things to do to look good to others. Don't read the Bible as a sense of discipline or duty you perform in the strength of your own flesh. Don't, don't read the Bible because you're driven by some guilt at how little you read the Bible. Read the Bible to know Jesus when you sit down tomorrow morning or tomorrow night or whenever you have your time, open God's word and just pray, show me Jesus. I just want to know him, the person, the living Christ. That's why we open the pages of scripture, to know him. It all points to him. We can't know him without this. All of the spiritual, so-called spiritual disciplines, they're all meant to just posture us to receive Jesus, to know him. So come to Jesus that you may have life. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. You have life in yourself and you give it. You give it away. You give it so freely, so generously. You just lavish yourself, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your compassion. You give life. You offer it to all who would trust you. What a humbling thing it is to stand before you without any excuses all of the fig leaves of false religion stripped away, all the systems and structures we set up to hide our nakedness and our shame, to stand before you and in that place know that you know us. You know us. You know our deepest, darkest secrets. You know our thoughts. You know all of our sins. You know it all, and you love us, and you draw us into your very own life. Oh, what a God you are. What a Savior you are. What a gospel you have revealed. Be exalted by saving sinners. Be exalted by causing your word to run forth speedily in this city so that many more would hear and know and turn. And God, make the people of Emmaus Road Church people who, who know Jesus. Not, not just almost Christians, not just 
nice people, not just churchy people, but people who know Jesus. And in this city full of tons of people with church backgrounds, help us to be gracious and careful and faithful and courageous and articulate messengers of this gospel, that it's, it's Jesus and Jesus alone who saves all who come to the Father through him by faith. Be exalted, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. of grace is Jesus my redeemer there is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this I hold my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me.
hope is only Jesus. All of the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. To this I hold. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. When the race is complete. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. What a hope. That's all our hope. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. So we read the Bible, and we pray, and we fellowship together, and we do all that because Christ himself makes himself known to us. He fills us. He gives himself to us through those things. And we know there's no hope in us. So go in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the very Spirit of God in you, joining you into the life of God, and live in the fullness of Christ this week for His glory and for your joy.